Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's Commonwealth Club program, a virtual program. There's no one who wishes they were there live more than John Carl and I do. Uh, I am Martha Raditz. I'm the Chief Global Affairs Correspondent for ABC News and a co-anchor of This Week, as is John Carl, uh, and he is also our Chief Washington Correspondent. But we're, we're talking about today is his remarkable and incredibly timely new book called Betrayal, The Final Act of the Trump Show. And there is nobody more qualified to write that book. Uh, and if you all remember his bestseller uh, from a year ago, John, uh, Front Row, he's been he's been very, very busy in the last uh, few years. But but John has known uh, Donald Trump more uh, longer than any White House correspondent. I think three decades, John, are you really that old? I find it hard to believe. Uh, it, it is a remarkable book getting rave reviews. Uh, John, you'll see him everywhere, but uh, we're so lucky to have him here today on and one of our favorite places and favorite audiences uh, to talk about the book. John, you you call this the final act, but but let's start where your last book ended. And and that's what this is really about. It's about the end of Donald Trump's presidency, going into the post-election period, and then through January 6th. I'll say right away that John and I have talked about this so much. Our offices are uh, one door apart. He happens to be in New York right now. Uh, but we have talked about this book, Donald Trump, for years and years and years. And I was on uh, Capitol Hill uh, on January 6th covering that riot and that insurrection. So, John, uh, start at the beginning of this book. Well, Martha, first of all, thank you for for being here and doing this with me. And you know, you were you were right there in the middle of it all on January sixth. You were um, you you watched the insurrection unfold from the scene of the crime, and I was at the White House um, that evening trying to figure out what the president of the United States was doing to try to stop what was happening. And the answer for several hours was absolutely nothing. Um, and I was reaching out to White House aides. I was uh, reaching out to former uh, 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 White House aides, people close to Trump on the outside, on the inside. And there was massive uh, frustration uh, with the fact that you saw, the world saw, uh, a, a group of, of Trump supporters start out in a march, what seemed like a protest march to the Capitol, and then fought their way in, uh, in in a truly horrifying scene that you were in the middle of on on Capitol Hill. So this this book tries to get to what brought us to that moment. And I and and you, we, we, we were we both reported day in and day out on the extraordinary series of events uh, uh, that unfolded in last year, in the year 2020, uh, the pandemic, uh, the presidential campaign, uh, those absolutely insane presidential debates, the two debates that we saw uh, between Biden and Trump and and the election and its aftermath. And what I set out to do in this book is to go back and try to more fully understand uh, the events that I had been covering uh, day in and day out and 
exhaustively, but I felt like there was so much more that I didn't understand what, what brought us to this moment. So that's really the, the, the arc of the book and the, and the reason why I, I called it Betrayal, uh, Martha, is as I, as I engaged in the reporting uh, uh, in this book and interviewed all I mean, as many of the key players as I could, from cabinet officials to two interviews with Trump and Trump himself, uh, to people that were close to him, people that felt betrayed by him. What I found is that Donald Trump was was so thoroughly consumed with the idea that he had been the one who was betrayed, and betrayed by the people closest to him. And as I watched and I saw the extent of what happened. I thought there was only one way to describe his actions, uh, which were a betrayal of the very democratic system that enabled him to be president of the United States. And, and I, I just, I just want to remind those of you who are watching this that if you have a question for Jonathan, he and I will probably talk a little bit, but we're going to take a lot of questions. Just please put them in the chat, and that's the way we will do that. So, so John, let's let's start with the day after the election or the week after the election. You and I, I think, and all of our ABC political team were up uh, nonstop waiting for that election to be called. No one wanted to do it early. When it finally was, what happens in Trump world? There, there's uh, an extraordinary series of events. That was Saturday, the Saturday after the Tuesday election. And Donald Trump actually went out to play golf. Uh, uh, that, uh, that, that, that morning. And when he came back, you have, a, you have an amazing split screen moment um, when on, on the day that the networks and other major news organizations all uh, declared president elect Joe Biden, that, that he was the president elect, that he was um, projected to be the winner, including Fox News. Um, uh, very definitively, Chris Wallace was on the air and was addressing Biden as uh, as president elect Joe Biden. And they had called they had called Arizona first. They had, they had called Arizona first and, and unleashed the fury of, of Donald Trump as a result uh, way before we did. But this all happened. Trump's playing golf. He comes back. This is the split screen moment. He has a meeting with his campaign aides in, in a room that, you know, uh, in the residence of the um, of, of, of the White House called the Yellow Oval. It's 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 a, it's a it's a beautiful living area that, that has these huge windows looking out over the South Lawn. You can walk out onto the Truman balcony. I mean, it's one of the real treasured parts of the White House residence. And Trump comes back dressed in his golf clothes um, to uh, to meet with his uh, senior campaign aides. And the split screen is that's one. On the other side, as that was underway, uh, at a place called Four Seasons Total Landscaping, <laughs> which we all now remember, uh, Rudy Giuliani uh, held a press conference with the Trump you know, legal team, such as it was, um, outside a landscaping uh, uh, company in the outskirts of Philadelphia, Trump clearly thought this was actually at the Four Seasons Hotel and initially put out a notice and had reporters running to the Four Seasons Hotel in downtown Philly, uh, when in fact it was and you know outside uh, in, in the lot of Four Seasons uh, Total Landscaping. So these two split screen moments, the campaign staff was was telling Trump, look, it's it, the networks have said it's over and it really is 
just about over. We 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 see a path for you. Justin Clark uh, um, was the, uh, the the lawyer for the campaign that, that that explained this to him. He said we see a path where you know we have a legal challenge in Wisconsin to how they dealt with absentee ballots. There's a pending legal uh, uh, legal challenge. Uh, challenge in Georgia uh, that, you know, the, 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 we think the count still, there's, there's a chance there. It's a slim chance, but if those come together, uh, you, we could have a situation where you really, you know, still have a chance, but it's about a five to 10% chance is what he said to Trump. And Trump said, ah, you know, I, I, I think it's much higher than that. Pennsylvania. And they said, no, we, sir, you've lost Pennsylvania. This is the campaign team telling him this, but Rudy Giuliani at the very same time, was out there at Four Seasons Total Landscaping saying that Trump had won the election and that the widespread fraud was going to be proven and it was in, you know, not just the states and it was all across the board and it was a big Trump victory and this was all being stolen. And that really is kind of, from there, you had two teams in Trump world, kind of a, the team that the some advisors called the crazies. That was that was Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell and and, and the team that started spinning weirder and weirder. Sidney Powell, the lawyer, yeah. And, you know, the kind of people that ran the campaign who really actually did know that it was over. But but after this, it, it gets, I, I, I mean, I think this is one of the extraordinary things about your book, about how organized this was afterwards, that there were memos going out, that there were documents going out. And then, of course, you had the purge. Yeah. So in, in terms of I, going back through this, what, what struck me, first of all, Martha, is that we came much closer to a total disaster. And it may have felt like a total disaster on January 6th. It did to me, and I'm sure it did to you, uh, watching unfold what unfolded. But actually, it came much closer to being something significantly worse. And what I saw in the lead up to January 6th is there was an effort to use all means necessary to overturn the election or really to effectuate a coup, which is the kind of definition here. It was seizing power um, from the properly elected uh, uh, you know, administration that was coming in. And this was – they used all instruments that they had at their disposal, and Trump tried to use um, – tried absolutely everything he could. Uh, there was a, a pivotal meeting, I think, one that really sticks out to me um, in, in late November when Donald Trump summoned the Republican leaders uh, from the state of Michigan, the, the, the House and Senate, both controlled by Republicans, both controlled by pro-Trump Republicans, um, and, and in a state where Republicans voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. He lost the election, but he, but Republicans in, in Michigan, revered Donald Trump. And these two leaders who were elected by those Republicans in that state were summoned to the Oval Office, and Trump had a, had a request of them. He wanted them to convene a new session of the state legislature and to undo what happened on Election Day in Michigan and to set a new batch of electoral votes, not Biden votes, as happened from the election, but Trump votes. And these Republican leaders loyal Trump supporters said no. And imagine how, you know what it's like, you, 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 you it's hard, even, even us, like, you know, even when we covered the White House, you covered the White House uh, for, for, uh, you know, during George W. Bush's yeah. uh, presidency. When you walk in that, in that room, no matter how many times you go in the Oval Office, it's, 
there's something intimidating about it, awe-inspiring. And here's the president, the popular president, leader of your party, popular among your constituents, making a demand of you, and they said no. Um, and I wonder what would have happened if they had gone along with it and, and a whole series of other people who faced similar circumstances had gone along with the demands of Donald Trump. Uh, it was his attorney general who said no, uh, wanted him to start seizing voting machines, uh, wanted him to declare that the election was fraudulent. He said no. Uh, it was the Republican secretary of state, obviously in Georgia, Brad Raffensperger. It was uh, the leadership in Congress, some of whom went along with them, but not all of them. And of course, it was Mike Pence. And if if anywhere along that line, those people had gone along with him the way that so many others did, I don't know where we would have been. In a whole different place, that's for sure. I I, I want you to I want you to go through some of the personalities here that that people have not heard about until your book came out, and and that is and and I got to say, including me. Okay, Johnny McEntee, who was, I'd heard of him, but certainly not in the way that you write about, which is it's so incredible. Johnny McEntee was what's called the body man, uh, the Reggie Love at that point, and that's you with, and, and, and he wasn't that for very long, he was just carrying suitcases before that, right? Yeah. And he suddenly becomes, which you found out, and, and had enormous amounts of power in the purge. I mean, he helped get Mark Esper fired, who was the defense secretary. I mean, I mean, really, unbelievable. I think one of the most important and intriguing and, you know, of, of figures in all of this and, and, and somebody who, as I came to conclude, really made January 6th possible. And I want to say, if you look at what the January 6th committee has been doing and you look at the people that have been subpoenaed, you know, we all kind of focus on the names that we all recognize, you know, Mark Meadows, uh, Steve Bannon, these kind of big, you know, figures uh, in, in, in Trump world, you know, even Bill Stepien, who was his campaign chairman. We, we see these these names, but look for some of those that are not household names. So McEntee's one, and I'll get to him in a moment. Another one is is Molly Michael. Molly Michael was his personal secretary, um, young woman who sat right outside the Oval Office, and th this is something that I mentioned in the book, and I've not really spoken about it at all um, since it's come out, but I, but I thought was very interesting, to say the least. Molly Michael is the one who called uh, to the Secretary of State of Georgia to set up the now infamous January 2nd call with Brad Raffensperger. And uh, she left a voicemail message uh, for the, the spokesperson, because that's she basically went to the website and got the, the general number and left a message on a Saturday that they got and then finally chased it down and thought it was a prank, you know, a prank message, but finally realized that it really was from the White House. But when Raffensperger's deputy finally got a hold of Mark Meadows to find out if this phone message was real, Meadows was really irritated. Uh, he said, you know, we've been trying to get a hold of you. We've left you 18. We've reached out 18 different times and you've ignored all of our calls. And they thought this was strange because they didn't know that they were ignoring calls. What do you mean? Well, it turned out that Raffensperger had been getting text messages from a Gmail account from a Mark Meadows. 
And he thought for sure it was a, a, a he was getting all kinds of prank messages, as you can imagine, because, you know, the the pro Trump forces had put out his cell phone number. He was it was getting all kinds of, you know, uh, nasty messages and, and whatnot. So he thought it wasn't real. It turns out it was real. So Mark Meadows, set up by Molly Michael, who is all part of setting up everything. Mark Meadows was communicating on a private Gmail account, chief of staff of the White House. All very interesting and stuff that that committee is going to want to go in and, and to look into. What you know? What else was he doing on that on that Gmail account? And has that been subpoenaed? Gee, that whole private email thing brings well, back memories, really doesn't it? <laughs> but Johnny McEntee um, was the body guy, and he got fired by John Kelly um, in the summer of, of, of 2017. There were issues with his FBI background check. Kelly was long gone by 2020, and he got brought back in. He was one of the first guys to work on the Trump campaign. He was McEntee, only- not Kelly. McEntee. McEntee came back in, and he was one of those guys. He had been with the campaign from the very beginning, and he was absolutely devoted to Donald Trump. 29 years old, right? 29 years old. When he came back, he was 29 years old. In the beginning of 2020, 29. And Trump decides he's going to put him in charge of what is called the Presidential Personnel Office. This is arguably the most important human resources office in America. They are in charge for the hiring and firing of all political appointees in the executive branch of the U.S. government. That's everybody from the defense secretary, the treasury secretary, the ambassador uh, to uh, to the Bahamas, uh, to, um, you know, deputy assistant secretaries of state and on down. The entire, every, every political appointee goes through PPO. Johnny McEntee at that point had never hired a single person in his life. And now he was in charge of all the hiring and firing. And what he did is he, first of all, cleared out the people that had been in PPO. It's about 30 people that do all the paperwork and all the vetting and all the whatnot. And he staffed it with his friends, basically. I mean, it's amazing. I put a photo in the book, Martha. (laughs) It's a photo, um, I think it's at a holiday party, but it's a photo with Donald Trump posing with Johnny McEntee and his team. And you see them, and they all look like they're under 30. I found at least three of them that had not yet graduated from college one team, one one senior official described them to me as the uh, as as very attractive young women and guys who wouldn't be a threat to Johnny McEntee and going after those women. This is the way one f- official uh, 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 said it to me, and 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 also said it was basically we we called them the Dungeons and Dragons group and the Rockettes. And it turned out that one of these one of these people actually did perform with the Radio City Rockettes on a Thanksgiving Day parade. Just saw them a couple of days ago. They're, they're amazingly talented, but you know you wouldn't necessarily think they would be uh, vetting no, the uh, next Secretary of Defense. Too. So, so McEntee goes forward with that team and starts interviewing officials high and low, asking about how loyal they were to Donald Trump and 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 some of these interviews I found out about they they would they would go through voting records. One one young official in the Department of Justice was asked why she had voted in a Democratic primary a couple years ago. Can you imagine they were going through the voting records? And then I've got one brand new one, Martha. Um, uh, Chris Krebs, who you remember was the head of cybersecurity. The Department right? Of, of, cyber, yeah. Uh, uh, the head of cybersecurity, and he was uh, an official that was basically in charge of keeping the election, you know, safe from cyber attacks. Um, he was fired one year ago today. And in the document that was prepared explaining by, Ma- by McEntee's team why he should be fired, um, it included that his wife's Facebook page included a family picture that had a watermark on it that said Biden-Harris. 
So they were going through the social media postings of the family, not just the officials. Well, well, wasn't wasn't one employee was it at HUD that that someone was disturbed at HUD because she liked something on Taylor Swift's Instagram? You can't account? make this up. You can't make this up. You cannot make. <laughs> and 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 the Taylor Swift in the if you if you turn the next page, it was she was posing with Biden cupcakes or something. Cookies. No, I mean if it had been cupcakes, I think it would have been okay. Uh, it was cupcakes. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no, the, you can't make this up. But 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 the, the extraordinary thing about that story is 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 McEntee's team discovered that this very junior assistant in Ben Carson's office. I mean, there's nobody in that administration that was more lo- more loyal to Donald Trump than Ben Carson. But they discovered that one of Ben Carson's assistants in his office had liked this Taylor Swift post, as you said, in the second photo had Biden-Harris cookies. Um, and it was and, and, and it was brought to Meadows' attention. This is Mark Meadows, the chief of staff of the White House, in the middle of October, mid to late October. Um, you know, the pandemic is raging, the campaign in the middle of, the Amy Coney Barrett hearings are going on. And Mark Meadows reaches out to the top official, top staffer at HUD and says, you know, we saw this like on this Taylor Swift thing. We really can't have our people, you know, uh, liking pro-Biden social media postings. Can you imagine? But this is what they were doing. And and the point was to instill fear, instill fear in everybody in that administration that they do anything that isn't exactly in line with Trump's whims. They're out they're done. So this is why when Trump took that turn after the election and it got crazier and crazier and its demands became more and more outlandish, there was nobody around who was willing to stand up to him. They were all either fired or intimidating, intimidated into silence. And, and I go back, if you will, John, because I did ask you about Mark Esper, the defense secretary. He was already in trouble because he had come out and said he, he was in the photo with President Trump in front of St. John's Church, Lafayette Square, posed for that political photo, and then later basically said he shouldn't have done that, um, and, and a few other things. So he was already in trouble, but there was a whole list of things that they said were his sins, right? Yes. The, another uh, extraordinary document uh, but from McEntee's team outlining what Esper had done wrong and why he needed to be fired. It included, as you mentioned, that he came out against the Insurrection Act, but it, but it put it, he opposed using active duty military to put down riots in American cities, um, which he did. Uh, it, it, it said that he had acted to uh, bar the Confederate flag uh, from U.S. military bases. This was a sin against Trump. Trump opposed that move. Um, it, it, it said that he, he favored... Uh, pushed diversity and inclusion in the U.S. military. That was a mark against him, so defined. Uh, it, it pointed out that when he was, during his confirmation hearings, he said that the a Secretary of Defense should not be a political position. They found that offensive. It said that he moved the department to be uh, opposed to Russia. Really an amazing document, but it was prepared uh, by Johnny McEntee's team, and at the end it, it, it called for exactly what should happen, which is right after the election, Esper should be fired um, and, and, and told to leave the Pentagon immediately, and he should be replaced by Christopher Miller, who was then the head of the uh, counterterrorism um, 
with really a, a resume that no one would ever have expected him to be named Secretary of Defense. And it happened exactly as outlined. And and Saturday the election is declared by the uh, by the networks. Monday, um, Esper is fired. He's given he's given no time. He's he's told to leave immediately. Uh, Miller kind of stalled on his way over, so Esper would have a little bit of time to at least pack up his desk, literally. Um, uh, told, get out of here now. And this is the Secretary of Defense, uh, Donald Trump's Secretary of Defense. And on the Tuesday, McEntee's team fires basically everybody else in the top uh, civilian ranks at the Pentagon. The Undersecretary for Intelligence and Security, the Undersecretary for Policy, the Chief of Staff for the Pentagon, all gone and replaced by people that Johnny McEntee and his team deemed fully and totally loyal to Donald Trump. I mean, the others have been serving Donald Trump. It wasn't like they were like, you know, imposters, uh, but but they weren't seen to be fully enough on board. Um, I, I just want to do a reminder here, if anybody watching and if you have questions, we have some coming in. I, I'm going to go to one in a second, but just put them in the chats uh, and we will. I will be happy to ask John those questions. Um, in fact, let me ask one. Let me ask one now. What is it like when people intimately involved in the Trump administration call you to tell you the real behind-the-scene truths about what's happening? You get a lot of those calls. Yeah. For, first of all, it, it it rarely happens quite that easily. Um, you know, I, I I went out and kind of systematically spoke to everybody I could speak to, and some of those interviews took a lot of. Um, Cajoling. A, a lot of cajoling uh, to get people, and I met them. I met. I, I did a lot of these, you know, at different locations, uh, you know, over 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 meals and coffee, and you know, trying to get people to to say, look, I, I, and, and the pitch I made to these people was, I'm writing this for the historic record. Um, this is not a story that's going to be out tomorrow. This is. I I, I want to establish for the record, what really happened, what it was really like. And a, a, a remarkable number of people just eventually opened up to me. Um, and, you know, a lot of them felt that what they saw unfold, even though they had been put in the positions they had because of Donald Trump, even though they had supported Donald Trump, um, they were horrified by the way it ended. And made them, for some of them, made them question what they had done from the very beginning. And I think it's actually interesting, Martha. Um, you and I have spoken about this a bit. That some of the most, some of the most strongly anti-Trump, anti-everything Trump people that are out there are the are Republicans who, at some point along the way, had been supportive, and some of them who worked for worked for Trump. I mean, look at John Kelly, who was Trump's chief of staff. Look at some, look at the way he views Donald Trump. Um, on January 6th, I talked to Kelly and he thought that Trump was literally mad uh, that, that, that he needed to be removed by the 25th Amendment because he was mentally unfit to be president. He wasn't in the administration at the time, of course, but, but there were others you cite in the book, um, Pompeo and Steve Mnuchin, who were talking about the same thing. Yes, Pompeo. I learned that Pompeo and Steve Mnuchin uh, had a conversation on January 6th, and that Mnuchin actually had spoken to several cabinet members 
um, about the 26th, 25th Amendment, which, again, you can remove a president if the president is uh, mentally unfit. It takes a vote of the cabinet. It's a complicated procedure. It's never been used in the way that it would have been used here. Pompeo, I found out, um, asked for a legal analysis of it to be done. Now, fast forward, Pompeo is very seriously preparing to run for president. And the only way you get elected president is if you, as a Republican, get the nomination is to win over the Trump, you know, the Trump loyalists. So Pompeo actually, you know, doesn't talk about this at all. And I couldn't get any comment. This was amazing. I, you know, these were two people who worked at the highest level for Donald Trump throughout the entire presidency. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't deny what I had learned and, and, and impeccably sourced. I'm, I mean, very, very well sourced on, on, on this, on this episode. I have no doubt at all that these calls happened, that these discussions happened. And when I went to Pompeo and Mnuchin uh, to ask them to comment on it and to speak about it, uh, neither one of them would talk on the record. And I asked, so do you deny that you talked about declaring Donald Trump mentally unfit to be president and removing him? Neither one of them would deny it. Neither one of them would confirm it. Neither one would die. It. If it, it would have been so easy to deny it if it wasn't true. But here's the thing, and this is the process of writing this book. I had my final interview with Trump this summer over the phone, and I had this exact conversation with him. I said, I told him what I was going to report, and I said, and he's like, that's, he used a word I won't use because we're on a family uh, commonwealth here, but, you know, he, he told me it was BS. He said that he's got letters from his cabinet officials telling him that it was BS, that, which I also asked for those letters. They, they don't actually exist. But, um, and, and I said, well, why won't they deny it? I mean, Mike Pompeo, you're a great secretary of state that you've, you know, praised so much. He, I mean, he, he won't deny it. And then after the interview with Trump was over, I got a phone call from somebody who had been dodging me and, you know, uh, for, for months, uh, who works for Pompeo and says, okay, I've got a statement for you. I mean, clearly Trump had issued a rocket at Pompeo and the statement was really something else. I put it in the book, but it begins with the words, a spokesperson for former secretary of state, Mike Pompeo says he never had any conversations, blah, blah, blah. But it starts, a spokesperson says, and so I asked the spokesperson who gave me this and they read me the statement using those words. Um, and I said, well, can I say you, can I say your name? Spokesperson blankety blank said, I said, no, no, just make it, uh, you know, I don't want to, you know, I mean, th th this person did not want to put their name on it because he, this person knew it was a lie. Uh, I, I want to talk more about your Trump interviews. You also flew down to Mar-a-Lago. Was it May? Yeah, it was March 18th. Was March, March, March. I know you missed something that we were going to do together because you Yeah, we were going to be on the border together. Um, we were going to be on the border and, together. And, and there was a COVID break. At, uh, so I, I did the interview on March 18th. I was going to fly out to Texas to be with you. To El Paso to be on the roundtable. And, and then suddenly it, the news broke that the next morning that there had been a COVID outbreak at Mar-a-Lago and I had just been there. So, you know, of course I couldn't come out and, and do this cause I had to thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a little complicated. Uh, I didn't catch anything, but I thought that would have been an amazing story. So I finally, cause I, 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 I you know, I, I was in that white house, that, that red zone of a white house 
and my family was always really nervous. They were telling me often, do you really have to go? Don't go. And I was like, this is the, I, I, you know, I, it was a very tough thing, but I, I had, I had to cover the story and there was so much COVID in the Trump white house, but I never caught anything. And then here I go to see him in another COVID outbreak. Um, following you everywhere, following all of us everywhere. John, talk a little bit about what, what that's like sitting down with Donald Trump. He knows you, he blasts out on, or used to blast out on Twitter. Now he blasts it out somewhere else. Um, you know, this sort of attack on the reporters, attacks on you. And yet there you are, come on in, John, I'll talk to you. Just it, it, talk about what that is like, what his motivation there is. Does, does he think he's going to change your mind? Does he think what? Well, you know, first of all, obviously he's entirely unlike anybody else who's ever been president. Um, but, but to just take a step back and think, I mean, I've, I've sat there just in the briefing room and, and, and there've been other, other places before the briefing room, but it had him on national television say the most vicious things about me personally. And I'm of the, like you, Martha, I, I know that my job is to not take it personally and not in kind of ignore it and just stick to what I'm trying to report on, but just take a step back and think about it. I mean, at various times, he called me a disgrace to ABC News, to the ABC News television network. He called me um, a third-rate reporter many times. He said I was never going to make it. Uh, he ridiculed me as a cutie pie. Um, he... There, there's a private, there's a thing that I describe in the first book where he screamed profanities at me that was not on camera. Um, but even in the midst of all that, you can see him the next day and he can be the most, it can be like nothing ever happened. It's the strangest thing, but he's the president of the United States. I'm trying to, I've tried to imagine what, what would it have been like? I covered Barack Obama like you. I, I, I covered, uh, you know, George W. Bush. Um, I, I mean, if any other president said those things to me, I don't know what, I don't know, but for him, somehow, you know, that he doesn't somehow mean any of it, I guess. I don't know, but he welcomed me to Mar-a-Lago. Um, couldn't have been, you know, he wanted to show off his lovely, I'd never been there actually. Um, I'd never been down to, to, to that club and, you know, it's a beautiful place. Mar Marjorie Merriweather Post's former residence. And he, he set the interview for five o'clock which I thought was a little bit strange in the, in the evening, but it's cool. I got there and his aides show me, well, this is where the interviews can happen. It's in the middle of the lobby, in the middle of this big lobby with towering, you know, ceilings and very ornate. And it's right before dinner time. And it's just as people are coming in for happy hour and dinner, the club members. And he eventually comes in, the interview starts maybe at like 530. So it's starting to get crowded, you know. And if you listen to the audio, you hear the sounds of, but it's almost like he wanted to be seen being interviewed by his guests. And he invited me to dinner afterwards and he was very, and, but the substance of what he was saying was chilling, but the way he was delivering it, he was like, he was matter of fact, he was like, you know, he seemed to be enjoying the conversation even during the times where he was saying things like justifying the people that wanted to murder Mike Pence. It wasn't like he was yelling in this conversation. It was a, it was a. And, and he, and he obviously didn't mind you recording it um, no, because you have that, as you said, that, that sort of chilling comments about 
It was not on camera, Martha, and I think that's a difference. I think it's different. You, you and I have both done. I mean, you, you, you were like one of the one of the great NPR reporters, and and and, and so you you spent a lot of a lot of time. Oh, it's hugely different. It's hugely different putting a TV camera in front of people. Hugely, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, but at the same time, he knows there's a recorder running and 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 when we've heard those chilling comments i, I want to ask you a couple questions from from the folks who are looking um with president biden's low approval rating do you think hyperpolarization will make it harder or impossible to get reelected for another term okay we're jumping to joe biden but that's okay yeah sure look i think we can deal with that i mean it's it, it's a it's a the polarization is so extreme um and and as, as the way I look at it is it's not simply, you know, that you have the, the political polarization, but the, the two sides not only have different political views, different ideology, um, but a different set of facts. Um, and Biden's approval rating is dangerously low. Um, the we, we had a poll out last week that showed that what we call the generic ballot for a midterm election. Are you going to vote for a Republican or a Democrat? Uh, for Congress. And the Republicans are, are at historically high levels. I mean, they look like, barring a major sea change, that Republicans will win control of the House and quite possibly the Senate. Um, so it's, yeah, you know, it, 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 the challenges are immense for, for Democrats. And, and does Joe Biden run again? And if he doesn't, is Kamala Harris the the, the kind of obvious Democratic nominee, or she have to fight for it? All really tough questions for Democrats. But I think that the other side of that is there is a majority in this country that would vote for anybody but Donald Trump, especially after all that unfolded. So he has a fervent support, vast majority of Republican supporters. But what Republicans, you know, who, whose job it is to try to figure out how to elect Republicans, realize is that he is so polarizing that it would be more difficult than even the last time, which he lost and lost decisively, uh, to win. Uh, because there are people that would vote for absolutely anybody. No matter how negative you are on Joe Biden, they'll vote for him. They'd vote for Kamala. They'd vote for anybody. So who knows? Um, we're, we're, we're a ways away. As you know, I'm not convinced that he's actually going to run for president, Trump, that is. Um, and, uh, but, but, yeah, d Democrats have a, have a massive challenge on their hands. Okay, from Democrats to back on 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 Capitol Hill, I, I, I want to talk a little more about January 6th itself. I know today the uh, so-called QAnon shaman was sentenced to 41 months in in prison. Uh, there are hundreds of others facing charges. I, if if you don't mind, John, I just want to talk a little bit about that day. For me, I was downtown first thing in the morning. Um, the, the the White House is just blocks from where I'm sitting now at ABC. So I went to the rally. I've been to Trump rallies before. It, it seemed by the Washington Monument, first of all, I was very surprised how many people were there. there. There were thousands and thousands of people there. Started very early in the morning, just on the street outside the hotel from uh, across from us was filled with um, MAGA supporters. And walking down there, but it seemed like a very lively outdoor rally. It, it, it didn't seem at that point threatening. 
But I started noticing there were people dressed in tactical gear and and veterans, which which of course I would immediately notice and talk to one of them and said, why do you have body armor on? Um, this this man was later very embarrassed when we when we tracked him down because he did not go up to the Capitol. Um, but he told me that he was afraid of the um, Black Lives Matter groups that they might come after him and said he had a family or something. So then uh, uh, Rachel Scott was up on Capitol Hill. So I came back to the bureau and within a very short time, it was clear that things had gone very bad up there. We raced up. Um, I remember getting in a, uh, we had one of our couriers drive me up there with my camera crew and, and I'm telling him to get behind the ambulance and get up there. So we got up there very quickly. Um, and then, you know, spent the rest of the day and night watching what was unfolding at the Capitol. And it was, horrifying, absolutely horrifying. And for me in particular, it was horrifying seeing that there were veterans there. Uh, I could immediately tell these were trained, these were trained soldiers, Marines, uh, veterans who were, who were on site there. The Oath Keepers were very near me and I could see they had communications gear. Anyway, you, you all know the story of what happened there, but John, when I think about it and I, and I was asking people on the Hill, I know he, issued a statement, Donald Trump issued a statement. No, he said, he said, go home or he said, whatever. They're like, it, it, this is bigger than him now, even. I mean, it was an extraordinary rallying on, on Capitol Hill, which, which they were motivated. Many of those people, including the guy sentenced today, were motivated by Donald Trump. So what was he doing? Can I ask you a question, though, about that? Um, well, it, it really two two part question. The first is, those people, yes, bigger than Donald Trump, were they there because they thought that's what Trump wanted? The people you were oh, talking yeah. to. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, they the, the people I talked to definitely. I mean, that they that that was a a rally cry that you know we need to come up here because you know whether they said you know Donald Trump sent us here, it's we have to do what Donald Trump and others have said, which is stop this stolen election. That was in their heads. And did they think that they were going to be able to do that? Did they think that, did they think that there was a way that Donald Trump was going to remain the president? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, and, and what? Notice how we've turned the tables here. I'm asking you the questions. One more, just one more. What, what, <laughs> what the people you spoke to, what would they have done if Trump had come out and done what every like so many people and I, we can get into this but but so many oh, people were calling I think I know what and, and begging him to come out and speak to the cameras and uh, make a national address and say this has got to stop go home and denounce the uh you know denounce the invasion what would they have done if if if, if, if they had said go home i i, I mean there were there are there i can remember one particular man i said why are you going home if he said, if, I said, if Donald Trump came out, in fact, I think I remember saying it that day on the air, um, if, 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 talk to him, if Donald Trump came out and said, go home, stop this, would you do it? And he said, no, it's bigger than him now. It, it's, you know, we've got to stop this. But, but the crowd up there was so, you know, there are people with baby strollers and just coming to see it. And then of course there are other people, you know, beating up police officers and, and just, horrendous violence. But uh, I mean, it's hard for me to say, and I wouldn't say that every single one of them thought this, that, or the other, but there were definitely people I talked to who said that. And um, yeah, I mean, it's like you said, if, if there were a lot of people there who didn't 
say this is not what we're going to do in terms of, of you know a Mike Pence or or a, a Mitch McConnell it's hard to imagine what what would have happened that day and and it's it, it's also I mean it seems so incredible that that people are starting to try to make others forget about that day just just forget about it put us put it behind us um, let me let me read some more questions for you John um, so what is the greatest challenge facing the Republican Party right now? And the Democrats. I think you just explained that. Yeah, facing the Republicans right now? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I, I think it's how, how you deal with, with, with Trump. It really is. Because he is the, the greatest motivator that they have for, for, their, for their base Republicans. Um, and he is probably the least electable person that they could find in terms of winning an winning a general election and that's why you saw you know the, the the republicans the republicans are poised to do very well because this often happens after you know in, in, in a midterm election uh there's there's a reaction against whoever has taken the white house but we we saw in these elections in virginia and in new jersey by the way i mean you know phil murphy the the democratic incumbent governor of new jersey came a lot closer to losing than anybody thought in a place that is not, you know, that is a solidly democratic state uh, uh, these days. And, but both those candidates, you know, Yunkin uh, winning um, in, um, in Virginia and, and, and the um, Republicans becoming so close in Jersey, in both places, the Republicans stayed away from Donald Trump, you know, and, and they emphasized, Republican policies, criticism of what the Democrats were doing, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you how do you continue to take this momentum if you're a Republican Party when you have a former president that only wants to focus on the past and is so reviled by a a, a, a huge segment of, of the country, independent voters, women, uh, how do you how do you how do you deal with that? Because he's not just disappearing. And, and another question is, why do you think Donald Trump may not run in 2024? Part of it is a feeling I get from watching him and knowing him and reading him. Everything he is doing is focused on 2020. Um, I don't see him making any serious preparations towards an actual run in 2024. But but doesn't that rally people 2020? I mean, yeah. it, 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 yeah. could that be looked at as what he's doing to prepare for 2024? Yes. He's not exactly a conventional campaigner. Yes. And, and, and you could also have said to me, Martha, that he didn't prepare to run in 2016 either. <laughs> it was all kind of a whim. But I just read it, and he doesn't seem to me like a guy that is gearing up to run. Second thing, though, is as delusional as he has become about what happened in 2020, and now I think he actually does believe the lies. I think it's actually he's internalized it, and he actually believes that the thing was stolen from him. Um, but I think he also has enough sense to know how difficult it would be for him to win again. And I think the last thing that he wants to risk is to another loss. I mean, he'll say it was stolen again and all that kind of stuff, but I don't think that he wants to risk that. And I think he likes to be 
have people come to him. He's, you know, he's enjoying himself in Mar-a-Lago and Bedminster. And so, but look, I freely acknowledge, even as I say, I don't think he is going to run, that most people around him say that he absolutely is going to run. I just don't believe them or believe that they know what what he will do. Um, and uh, that I may be wrong. So I, 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 I freely acknowledge that. Um, but I just think it's less likely that, that, that he runs. John, let me ask you this. If he runs, someone like you, who's, who's written this book, who's covered him all these years, in the media in general, how do you cover John, Donald Trump running for president? What do you do? What do you say? Well, you know, the, the, this is a challenge unlike any that we've ever seen because you would be covering a – I mean, I, I guess we dealt with this – in 2020, but it would be so much more in 2024, given what happened after the election. You're basically covering a democratic election where one side is anti-democratic, is actually trying to undermine the very system that makes possible what we are covering. And that is immensely difficult for us as reporters and as news organizations. We have an obligation uh, to stick to the facts, we don't take sides. Um, we, we we report the facts. Chips fall where they may, but when you have one side that is going against everything that our democratic system stands for, and is saying things in, in a perpetual way that is not true, repeating lies over and over again. You know, we can't, I mean, we can't do the traditional thing. I mean, you know, let's... Do you have them in debates? Do you, what, what do you, I mean, this is a big, this would be a big question. So, so Martha, there were, there were, there were a few times, uh, even in the, even in the beginning of the Trump administration where the conversations that I was having at the White House and I was on the White House Correspondents Association board and became the president of the WHCA. And there were times where you'd have a, you'd have these discussions of, is it responsible to air the words of the president of the United States of America? I mean, which is just, uh, they even think you have to ask that question. But there were times where it was clearly not responsible to do so. If he's going to come out and he's going to say things, especially as we got into the pandemic, he's going to say things that are emphatically untrue and actually dangerous. You have to, you have to have the broadcast on a delay. You have to show the words in full context or not air them at all. So I think we will face that situation on a daily basis. And do you have a debate? Yeah, like, do you have a nationally televised debate? And if you don't, how is that a campaign? How is that an election? So immense challenges. Um, and I think we just have to stick to first principles, but the playbook has not been written yet. Okay, uh, just so we're almost out of time here. So what do you expect the outcome of the January 6th House Committee to be? I think so much depends on what happens in the fight over executive privilege. And there are two fights. There's the fight over the documents, um, which I think it's very likely uh, the committee will prevail, but it will take time. And you just don't know what happens if it goes all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, but they have... they. If they if they win the executive privilege fight, they will have access to a treasure trove of documents uh, that I think will significantly further our understanding of what happened 
before, immediately before and on January 6th. The other big fight, of course, is over Steve Bannon and the others and uh, executive privilege regarding testimony. And I think they're also likely to win that as well. Um, all this adds up to potentially, and I believe this committee is working very seriously, I should say that I think that they have done a lot more than any of us are aware. Uh, they've interviewed over 100 people. Uh, we don't, I mean, I have no idea who the 100 people are, um, and they're not saying, and good for them. Because when you build a case, you don't build it in public. I saw some people complaining that the January 6th committee was doing these interviews behind closed doors. Well, yeah, that's called depositions. The Army McCarthy hearings, which we all you know, remember and played such a critical role in the downfall of Joe McCarthy, they didn't happen – because they, okay, come on, everybody in, turn the cameras on. We're going to start asking questions. They methodically built a case and thousands of pages of documents on the committee investigation that proceeded for months and months and months. Uh, those hearings, those documents were only made public fairly recently, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, so it's important that they develop the facts, present the facts in a very compelling way. And I think they're doing that. I think Martha that we could see a series of primetime hearings later in the summer of 2022. Um, has to be in the summer. It can't be in the middle of a, pre of, of a midterm election fall campaign where you will see a factual uh, evidence presented, but also testimony that we've never seen. Remember, the House impeachment managers didn't call any witnesses and couldn't. And the question is, who's going to testify? Is Bill Barr going to testify? national television prime time about what he knows, which is all of Trump's claims of election fraud or bullshit, excuse my language, is Mike Pence going to testify about what he was under, the pressure he was under on January 6th? Are those other officials that I've talked to, I've talked about in my book, going to have to come forward and tell their stories? Some of them I know because I spoke to them actually want to tell their stories. So I have actually very high expectations for what the committee does, but they are running against the clock, and much of it depends on whether they win those court battles over executive privilege. How important are, are those hearings? How important would it be to you for the country to see a primetime presentation like that? Do you think the country needs that, wants that? I think the country absolutely needs it. Um, I think that... Uh, I think that there are a lot of people, first of all, I acknowledge that there are some minds that will never be changed. But I think that there are a lot of people who believe what Donald Trump has said about the election, not because they're bad people, uh, not because, you know, they're know that they've bought into some lie. I think they believe it because it is it can be confusing. I mean, Martha, we were on air all night election night and over the next several days and as those votes came in the evening of election night donald trump had a huge lead he was up hundreds of thousands of votes in uh in pennsylvania he was winning in wisconsin he was winning in michigan it looked like he was going to win if you were just looking at how the votes you know wh where the votes stood and then suddenly you wake up in the morning and you see, wait a minute, where'd that go? Joe Biden suddenly in the lead? And 
you and I understand the reasons, and, and, and anybody who's kind of really studied this understands that, you know, votes that are cast on election day get counted quicker in, in, in these states, and the votes that come in via mail that have to be go through the rigorous process of signature verification and, and, and all of that. Um, and that's why you had a, what was called, and we spoke about it that night, as a red mirage. Um, but I think that there are a lot of people that, you know, you need to capture their attention. What really happened? What were really the facts? Donald Trump has done a good job of repeating a lie so often that people end up believing it. And that's why it's important to see the evidence and not, it, it cannot look like a partisan exercise. I mean, it is in some ways because you have Republicans have taken one position on this, and but it's got to look like it is not based on that. It is based on fact and, um, and, and, and sticks to the point. Um, and I think it's incredibly important. And I think that minds can be changed if they do that and they don't make it look like, you know, an exercise in, you know, Democrats trying to get prepared for midterm elections. It cannot look like that. Well, I certainly think about it every day when I see the Capitol building and and what happened on that day. John, it's great to talk to you because we don't actually have a whole hour to talk to each other very often. Mm-hmm. Want to thank everybody for joining us and we encourage you to pick up a copy of John's book, the latest book. You can get the other one too, Betrayal, the Final Act of the Trump Show at your local bookstore. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts, please visit commonwealthclub.org. Uh, I'm Martha Raditz. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, John Carl. Your book is just terrific. Thank you, Martha. Awesome to uh, to spend some time talking to you. I'm in New York right now, so I'm not down the hallway at this moment, otherwise I would come and thank you in person. But I really appreciate it. Thank you. Best of luck. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.